0: The Lord gave you a pair of feet, a great big hand, a little band, a lot of hype, a lot of soul, and he gave you the starring role. But the Lord refused to take a while to invent the steps or provide the stars. The rest is up to you he said so go forth and knock them dead Congratulations you're in the-
1: You're listening, studs, on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Catherine Collins. Now, Catherine, um, I'm just trying to think the best way to 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 say this, um, because what you've done, um, well, I guess to introduce the main thing you got going right now is you have the Neil the Horse uh, collection of your comic series um, from Mm -hmm. the '80s, maybe coming out. It'll be coming out. Uh,
2: May I make a suggestion? You might want to explain who I am by
1: the other name, too. Arn Saba was the uh, name um, you went by when Neil the Horse was published. That's right, back in the 80s. And I had a little, just a little gender change. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so that was uh, kind of a very unique. Work that came out. It, uh, I think it's the only musical comic, or one of very few. I'm sure that it's the
2: only singing and dancing comic book
1: that actually came with um, sheet music. With sheet music, and
2: then, excuse me, <clears throat> most of those same songs were, I um, uh, We recorded. Uh, yeah. So, my 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 li- my little world is totally summed up in Neil the old horse. It's comics and musical comedy. And that was the, of course, the motto for the Neil LaHorse characters. Was making the world safe for musical comedy.
1: And you're doing so once again now with the, uh, with the Indiegogo campaign. Um mm-hmm. to, to, to publish the work, uh, Hermes Press um, is looking to raise funds to print up the book. Um, for me, uh, I'm excited to support this um, being Inksta, it's really uh, interested in Canadian work. Um, it was fun rereading this because it is, in a way, distinctly Canadian. Is it? Do you think so? I think there's some pretty Canadian components. I guess
2: there are. Well, certainly there's one very long story, um, Neil in Old New France. So that's one thing that you wouldn't find in an American comic. Which, for
1: uh, the un-Canadian, uh, uh, would be Quebec. Quebec, no. yeah, <laughs> right.
2: So, m- may, may I explain quickly to to you folks there at home, uh, <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Comic Book, um, that I, I did nail the horse from 1975 to 1993, although it was last published in 1991, actually. Um... I started out as a comic strip, and then I had to, had to switch to comic books. At the same time, I was doing CBC radio programs all about comics and writing magazine articles all about comics. And I'm from Vancouver originally, but I moved to Toronto to be closer to the center of Canadian media. So I was pretty inescapable for a couple of decades in, in Canadian media and in the comics world, I guess. Um, I was you know, one of the more active and prominent people in the comics world in Canada, and at that time, but nobody's heard of me now at all. <laughs> oh, I, I, I
1: we're going to have to agree to disagree on that. Um, well, the educated elite are aware of me. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the things I was trying to figure out how to how to verbalize is you did a project uh, you mentioned uh, being on CBC. Um, I don't say project, but you had a radio show where you did quite the same thing that I do now, only. Um, in the 70s, with...
2: Well, 70s and 80s. And 80s, okay. Uh
1: Um, Where you would interview strip cartoonists. Um, And I think, before we jump into that, actually, I kind of want to go, rewind further back. Um, Mm -hmm. As I said, I was going kind of chronologically. And kind of thinking about your work, and how we kind of get into covering these comics, is... Going back to the first issue of Neil the Horse and the second page where you dedicate to Karl Barks, and um, and we, we've had conversations before, a little, uh, just so folks know, if this isn't the first time Catherine and I have talked, and I know Karl Barks is really important to you. Absolutely. An um, and so, wondering, taking that step back and kind of as a child reading comics and the impact that seeing. These duck books, for those who don't know, Carl Barks, <laughs> yes. the creator of Uncle Scrooge and the artist of Donald Duck and Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and
2: many well, more. Carl Barks' work was a really a major part of my childhood and adolescence and the rest of my life. My mom first discovered the Barks comics, and she started buying them for herself, and then, of course, she let us read them or she read them, to us actually. her Her story was she. She told me how she discovered the ten-cent comic book, which was she was in the, the drugstore store at Forty-first uh, and Dunbar in Vancouver, Nightingale Drugs, run by Mr. Nightingale, and she saw this spinner of comics, ten cents each. She thought, "Gee, that's nice and cheap." And my mom was always a a comics lover. I'll have to tell you more about that. But um she thought, "Okay, I'm gonna, you know, start reading these and." uh As soon as we all discovered Barks' work, because we didn't know his name, all of us loved them. Me and my three siblings and my mom, we would sit around on the floor looking at the comics. We would laugh our heads off. We were were just delighted by them. And uh, so it didn't take too long for me to think, I don't want these to get all ripped up by my brothers and thrown away. So I started taking them and squirreling them away in my room so that I started collecting. I started collecting... Comic books when I was about seven years old. <laughs> so, yeah, Carl uh, Barks inspired me to, to to do something unusual, you know, to to create a world. And uh, at first, I thought I would really be inspired by him in the sense of the kind of humor, the even the the look of it. But as soon as I started working on on Neil, I I gave myself more artistic freedom, I guess, than that. You know, you can't decide, oh yeah, I'm going to be just like somebody else. That doesn't seem like a really really good method of of doing cartoons. So I had to give myself the freedom to do whatever really came naturally. And lo and behold, it turned into a musical comic book. I didn't know that was coming. I didn't start out with that idea at all. But it quickly went that way. But you weren't immediately inclined to do comics. Was that... Inclined to do comic books, No. Newspaper strips were always what I loved most. I and that's something you really wanted to draw I wanted from, to do, from early on. I, yeah, it, I, I never thought about doing comic books. I, I always aspired to, to do newspaper strips. But of course, when I was a child, back in the 18th century, um, the comics were huge and mm-hmm. beautiful. You know, big, beautiful colored pages. <laughs> and, uh, and so that is one kind of comic but then the little dinky, silly little things they have today is not even the same art form anymore. So when people think of strips, when I say I wanted to do strips, I wanted to do big old-fashioned strips. You yeah. know? Let me tell another little story about strips. When when my mother was a teenager in the thirties, she started saving, cutting out of the newspaper and pasting into into scrapbooks, Terry and the Pirates. So in the fifties, as soon as I learned how to read, she pulled out the scrapbooks and show them to me and i just read them and read them over and over and over again she had about three and a half years i think of of the very prime best (laughs) years of terry and the pirates so i i grew up in the 50s reading the the 1930s uh terry and the pirates and reading carl barks you know two of the greatest masters of comics ever and uh i feel so lucky you know the rest of people my age had to wait till the late 80s for a reprint of Kniff to start coming out. And um, so I, I was educated to, to the best. And uh, so, so those two were my biggest influences, even though it, Kniff doesn't really show up in my work. But um, but those, th- those two convinced me that, you know, doing comics was obviously the only thing a
1: sensible person would do with their lives. <laughs> Fools! Yes. Um... <laughs> yeah. uh, I was thinking about how Floyd Gofferson kind of... I know him as well as a big... Yeah, there was a late influence. It was different than... The, I was
2: aware of his work. I didn't know his name. But um, he uh, it, it didn't really sort of permeate my brain to the same extent. Uh, and, and the reason it showed up so much, so visually, obviously, uh, is because just prior to starting to do Neil the Horse, I had laid hands on a big collection of... of Early Mickey strips, reprinted in a in a uh, weekly comics newspaper, not the Menominee Falls papers, but one called Golden Funnies, and uh, for several years they would print a, a, a page every week of early and daily oh, wow. strips. So I, I saw those and I just I was just blown away by the by the wonderfulness of the, whatever the word is that you know the. It seems like a silly word, but the, the beauty of, of his line and of his balanced compositions and, and the figures that looked so much like they were alive in a, in a animated cartoon. So I just was dazzled by him. And at that point, I was just starting Neil the Horse. So that kind of, you know, got in there. But then after a while, uh, I think he simmered down in my mind to his proper place, which is, you know, some, I really, really admire his stuff but it still wasn't the deep influence that the others were.
1: I was just thinking about how um, he's kind of a marriage of the two in a way as Mm, well.
2: That's true, because the Mickey stories are adventure stories, a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Oh, Robin, you're so clever.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Don't, don't. Ah, Flutty, I'll get you nowhere. Um, So were you... um, Neil the Horse was your main comic thing um, in the 70s, but were you playing with other characters before, Neil? Well, yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I went to UBC, and the, the,
2: the student paper there, the UBC... <laughs> um, which still runs today. Which still runs, yes. Uh, I For four years, I did a three times a week strip with the paper for about three times a week. So I had a strip in there th- three times a week for four years. I'm never, ever going to let anybody see. <laughs> I should go visit their archives. <laughs> I think it's even online, actually. Oh. It, was a, it was a mock superhero. I had done this character as an illustration for an article, and a whole bunch of people said, oh, why don't you make a comic out of him? wouldn't have been what I chose. It was a pretend superhero called Moral Man. M-O-R-A-L, Moral, moral Man. Oh, okay. And his only power was to go around being moralistic and telling people off. He didn't have any other powers at all. <laughs> power of indignation. So, um, yeah, so I did that. And that turned into a musical comic strip eventually as well. In the last year, the characters started singing a lot. <laughs> 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 I don't seem to be able to, to contain myself. I also did a... When I was 16, I did an illustrated book, so sort, of, sort of comics, about, about Garbage Man. And it was a musical... Book Musical too. garbage men. Yeah, singing, singing and dancing, throwing garbage cans through the air in a choreographed way. So anything that I ever did seemed to turn into into comics with with music.
1: So did you, um, when you were growing up, did you watch a lot of musicals? Did you go to, like to local theaters? Yeah, I was completely <laughs> enamored
2: of of musicals. My my parents also loved them, and so I got. To see a lot, and, and my dad would buy all sorts of original cast albums and so on, so I was steeped in that in, in musical comedy milieu and, and 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 style you know and I haven't ever been able to get away from that at all when I, whenever we would come out of a, a movie here on Granville Street <laughs> downtown Vancouver, if, I, if, we, if we came out of a musical which we frequently did. I would start singing and dancing on the sidewalk. I was so carried away. I couldn't. I c- couldn't. I couldn't quite separate the, the world of the m- movie where everybody was singing and dancing and my world. It seemed like I took it out of the theater with me, and um, I failed to notice that there was no orchestra playing, and that I had no choreography. But I thought that was just a tiny detail. Yeah,
1: you know, you know, so, so definitely, it was
2: definitely a big love of
1: mine too. Did you learn um, any dance um, at any point? Because I mean, dance, you know, with the music uh, is important in Neil the Horrors.
2: It is, and yes, I did. Although, after I had started Neil, it was some, sort of an inspiration I had about five years into into doing Neil. Because when I was thirty years old, I completely fell in love with Fred Astaire. I'd never really paid attention to him before. And suddenly, I was just in love with this man, you know, (laughs) and his dance was just, wow! So he became a huge influence. Um, And so uh, then, of course, starting to put the dance into the comics, dance was turning into a big deal for me. So for eight years in Toronto, I went five days a week for an hour and a half to a professional jazz dance school and they let me take the, the you know, bottom-level class over and over and over again for eight years. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody was under any illusion, least of all myself, that I was going to become a, a dancer. I was already in my 30s. You know? <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. But I just wanted to know the discipline of it. I wanted to understand what dancers go through. I wanted to understand the, the details of... Oh, it yeah, did. Yeah, it stopped. Um... That was my cell phone. Um, Yeah, I wanted to understand the details of choreography, how choreography got created, and how it got transmitted to the dancers, and how the dancers would learn it and remember it. Uh, All that stuff. Just, I wanted to know all those details.
1: Would you sketch it all while you were there?
2: No, I was too busy dancing. (laughs) (laughs) I was was really into it. Um, I never was any good. I improved slightly over the course of eight years. But when I moved away from Toronto I I where the hell did I move first? I guess I moved to LA and then I came back to Toronto. But anyway, I eventually left Toronto for good. Went to England, London. And I never there or San Francisco where I lived later, never found another professional dance school that would let a duffer in to just to just, just flail around on the on the floor, you know. <laughs> I was very lucky.
1: I think that uh, is a statement of the uh, Canadian uh, hospitality. Do you think, think that's what you could it is. say? Yeah, the. the uh, I'm, I'm gonna go with that. Okay, that sounds like a good interpretation. No, um. Did you start Neil when you were you were living in Toronto when you started Neil? No, I was here. Oh, in, in Vancouver. In Vancouver. Yeah. Well, Deep Cove.
2: To oh, okay. Be precise. <laughs> when it, my my um process of inventing Neil do you, want to, do you want to hear more of that story yeah that
1: would be great
2: well um, in about 1973 or 74 um, I decided okay I've got to get serious now This, you know, my life is <laughs> going along I better start doing what I really want to do which was to invent a character or set of characters and start spinning out the stories and uh so I, I tried a number of different scenarios and sets of characters uh, for a couple of years, I guess. Uh, you know, draw a few pages of one and then draw a few pages of another. And I never found one that was really satisfying to me you know, up to a certain point. Um, the main problem being, I, I recognized that what I wanted to do was have a, bright, you know, a, a set of characters so the readers would get to know, so they were very well defined, and... Um, But I wanted them to have a framework in their lives so they could go anywhere and do anything. They would have a reason to go somewhere, go anywhere and do something, in the way that Karl Barks gave the ducks reasons, especially when Uncle Scrooge came along. Suddenly Uncle Scrooge needed the other ducks to come and help, and he had the means to get there. So, you know, they were very uninhibited in where they could go and what they could do. So that's what I wanted. I wanted characters who were specifically grounded somewhere and their, their personalities were very specific, but their personalities also lent them to going anywhere in the past, in the future, you know, to the moon, whatever. Um, so I was working on that, trying various different concepts. And um, one day, I was, when I was living in Deep Cove, I was coming home from my part-time work as a paste stop artist, and uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, I was just walking through, the, there was a park I would walk through to, to get to, you know, from the bus to my, to my little house, and as I was on that path, walking toward the house, oh no, it was on the sidewalk, pardon me, scratch the path, I was on the sidewalk. Okay, I, can, I, know, I remember now exactly where I was. I could go to that exact spot and paint an X on it. Suddenly, I had a vision. Of Neil and Soapy, my two characters, Neil the horse and Soapy the cat. And it just came to me completely whole. Their characters, what they would look like, their relationship to each other, and the world they lived in. It was just like, all of a sudden, bang. And obviously the preparatory work for a couple of years before that was, you know, was behind it. But uh, suddenly it's, it came to me, and that's how I started Mademoiselle Poupet, the third character, was not in the story at that time. She she came along a few years later. But um, I'll tell you one more little snippet detail. This is for, this is for the super fans who you know, want all the trivia. All, all one of you out there. Um, the name, Neil the Horse, was invented in 1968. I mean, I invented it. In 1968, <laughs> it didn't just come in a fortune cookie. Um, <clears throat> I... Uh, I was just I was fooling around. I was living in Montreal, ostensibly making films at the National Film Board, but they didn't give us anything to do. But anyway, so I had, not you know, I just I would sit around a lot of the time in the National Film Board offices. So I, I uh, d- oh, there was an underground newspaper in Montreal. And I thought, well, I'll come up with a comic strip for the underground newspaper. So I drew one page of Neil the Horse. He didn't look like Neil now. He didn't have any of the same characteristics but just the name I worked very hard on that name because I wanted one that not you know that wasn't uh, alliterative yeah. <clears throat> you know, Mickey Mouse Donald Duck Bugs Bunny Porky Pig you know et cetera et cetera so I wanted one that sounded off kilter I wanted one that was sounded sort of clumsy and stupid and at the time Neil the Horse really contained a lot of that anomalous sound now of course at least for me you know, the horse is just an obvious phrase. It just rolls off the tongue. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I gave the strip to the editor of the Montreal Underground paper, and he admitted to me later that he'd lost it. and So he never did see print. Oh,
3: no. Yeah.
2: <laughs> anyway, but I, remembered, I even remembered the, what happened in that strip, and I
1: read through it at one point. It's interesting talking to you about that point in time, because most cartoonists I've talked to that did work then... Mm-hmm. There's such an affinity with the underground movement, and I don't feel that really with you very much at all. Like I know you have some Robert Crumb book, the sketchbook. Yeah, I admire a lot of the underground artists, but it's not something that you feel. Well, tried I tried. I tried a little bit to, you know, but I just don't
2: have that kind of scurrilous nature. Yeah. I don't. I don't have any, any, desire to be shocking or outrageous or revolutionary. My heart is with them. In, especially in being revolutionary, my political views are basically overthrow everything constantly. Kill the rich people. <laughs> steal everything you can get your hands on. These are some of my political beliefs.
1: Uh, I'll keep that in mind if you're ever in my home. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, it
2: depends who I'm with before okay. I steal things. But, okay. yeah, I'm, I'm a belief. I'm a, belie- I'm a believer. I have a belief in, in stealing from rich people. And so, you know... I have no qualms about that. But uh, (laughs) I'm not lying either. It's true. I really mean that. Very peculiar. Um, Little Robin Hoodie? No, I steal it and keep it for myself. Oh, okay. Anyway, (laughs) part of that I'm shining you on. But um, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, underground. I tried. I tried, you know, in that period when I was sort of figuring out what I could do. Because an artist has to find out what they really are capable of and what they. Are comfortable with, so I tried to find some sorts of attitudes I could strike or statements I could make that would be, you know, that outrageous, and just didn't come out of me at Mm -hmm. all. I just I just kept drawing characters singing and dancing. (laughs) That's all I could do.
1: (laughs) That's okay. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Um, and maybe we should make a note, Um, although. Not connected to the underground scene. Um, someone that is Trina Robbins um, is doing the introduction for the for the putative book. Yeah, yeah.
2: You know, Trina and I have been friends for oh God, 35 years or something like that. Yeah, back when wow. we were both young sprouts. <laughs> but she, do do you think of Trina as an underground? Or well, she
1: she started as one. She started as one, and she's uh, an important um, part of. Of the undergrounds, so, like I think the undeniable importance of what treated it at the time and women's Absolutely. comics. Yeah, uh, I think women's comics. I mean, I can't understate how important that is as a series, um, right. providing an avenue for women that, at that point in comics, were pretty marginalized. Very, um,
2: very much so. And this was the first statement
1: of, of feminism in the comics world. Yeah, and, and it's and it's, <coughs> it's. On their terms. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the really great things about women's comics is there's no... Um, there's no filter um, where with, um, you know, somewhat allied folks like Art Spiegelman um, that's still an editor that's a male filter right. that would yeah. play a role. Um,
2: yeah, this is directly from the women yeah. out, out
1: to the reader. Yeah, and yeah. so I, I have a pretty... A strong soft spot for for women's comics. Oh, I, I think
2: that, that's a, a
1: good thing to have. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it, it's the first of its kind. And and it's taken
2: an awfully long time. Now, with the new generation or generations plural of, of cartoonists, I don't know that I can guess a proportion, but, <clears throat> but there's lots and lots and lots of women who are getting lots and lots and lots of attention. And it seems that any vestige of, sort of prejudice against women is gone for the younger for the younger cartoonists yes and no, yes and no,
1: yes and no. I you think, think it depends there? on the uh, on the others i think um, um the internet's provide a lot more egalitarianism mm-hmm. and we're seeing a lot more kind of um Women like, say, Kate Beaton. Mm I don't know if you're familiar with Kate. Oh, yes, absolutely. She's fantastic, and uh, another Canadian. Yes. Um, We'll we'll make that note. Um, It's been great for folks to come on that and have amazing success. Right. um, When there hasn't been barriers in the way where I think uh, institutionally, um, with mainstream publishers, they're still um, male-dominated Yes. You know, enterprises and... And, um,
2: and the subject matter is very male-centric, too.
3: Yeah.
2: I mean, I think a b- big reason why there weren't very many women cartoonists for a very long time is that very few women wanted to be associated with that kind of work. Yeah. They, uh, they either were offended by it or, or, or bored by it, or both, and just didn't find any appeal. You know. So um, <clears throat> I think in another... 25 years or something, when everybody now working in superheroes is, and publishers superheroes, when well, they've all died. <laughs> M- maybe the mania for superheroes will have died down, although may- maybe
1: not. We could have said this exact same statement 50 years ago. Well, maybe, maybe you're yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'll say, I, 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 there are superhero stuff I do enjoy. Um, I think, you know, anyone listening to Studs knows what I cover and um, if you go to any kind of small press show now you'll see it's it's a gender balance oh really um, you think
2: it is about 50-50
1: yeah uh-huh good I thought it might be but I, I didn't know yeah no say if like you go to Van Calf, uh the Vancouver Comic Art Festival in in May and you go to that just check it out you'll see it'll be quite I think happily surprised mm-hmm. by the mm-hmm. the difference there, and it's the same with any of the the big alternative shows. And that that's the big difference is the small press where you see folks making personal work. I think is where you're seeing more mm-hmm. more women mm-hmm. getting involved. Well, yeah, in the
2: the superheroes and other <clears throat> other shoot 'em ups and beat 'em ups. Um, <laughs> 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 um, that that world is is a is a male world, and uh, it's a different kind of comic. Not just it's not just a matter of it being personal, but other other subjects besides fighting. Yeah. You know, as soon as you get away from that, that, that world is just a very commercial world. It's it's you know, th- those comics wouldn't exist if there wasn't a corporation behind them, trying to make as much money as possible. It's, it's nothing to do with the reasons why a lot of us do comics. Yeah. So, um, it's it's almost like that hasn't changed. That world hasn't changed, but another whole comics world has has grown up beside it, and, and it's looking good.
1: Yeah, well, it's, just, it's in some ways it's the same comics world that was there before it. What, what do you mean, I'm sorry? That, like, um, you know, thinking of creators like Frank King and George Harriman making really personal work, mm-hmm. and I see, like, this kind of connection, especially when you look at, like, someone like Chris Ware, and how mm-hmm. he's taking from that and right. doing work but now, and now people are taking from Chris Ware.
2: Right, right, yeah. Yeah, so the alternate... W- the world of al- alternative comics, maybe, um, is growing and okay. and, sp- and spreading
1: like a, like a cancer. I mean, no, like a, <laughs> like a fungus. Um, um, anyway. Now, one of the things you mentioned earlier um, was I was saying you kind of... you did these interviews with cartoonists and I'm wondering hmm. how that came alongside doing your cartooning. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm just trying to remember what made me start that. You know, nobody's
2: ever asked me that before, and I <laughs> let me see now. Um, well, I uh, started doing little snippets of uh, of programs here in Vancouver before I moved to Toronto. I, I guess it happened because I—I I mean, that part happened because I was interviewed on CBC on the local uh, afternoon show, and uh, and it, it turned out that. Uh, they thought I was a pretty good talker and that I had an unusual attitude to things. And so it evolved that I would do little sequences for them, you know, 10 or 15 minute sequences, not about comics. The ones here in Vancouver were always about some other quirky thing. Uh, almost the only one that I remember was I was sent to the p to get all the junk food I could find, which is not very difficult. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the mini donuts of the p are my favorite.
2: The Mini donuts, yeah, those are about the only things I can swallow now. But they had me review the like the most egregious of the of the junk food at at, at the PNE.
1: That's not fair. Why? It's not healthy. <laughs> well,
2: we didn't know that back then. I, and I and I got on a on the telephone live from the p e and I, I remember chowing down on a Belgian waffle while I was supposed to be talking on the radio. <laughs> Anyway, then I moved to Toronto, and I thought, if nothing else, I needed to keep doing radio because I I needed the money. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And so um, I went into the office of, uh, what was it called at that point? Was it Morningside? I guess it was Morningside. Morning program, three-hour-a-day morning program, and was directed to speak just to one of the producers, who was Vicky Gabbro, who then later became briefly famous, um, and she told me later, you know, a few years later, she, she had misunderstood what I told her. She thought I'd had an awful lot more experience than I really had. I don't know what exactly she heard me say or thought she heard me say. So there I was suddenly thrown into the studio to be on live nationally broadcast radio with very, very little radio experience. Suddenly there I was, uh, sometimes hosting shows, mostly producing producing and appearing on segments mm-hmm. um, so I think how the comic interviews Cartoon's interviews started was that I just had to think of what am I going to do to keep on selling what they used to call items I'm going to do an item and an item usually meant between 15 and 25 minutes a little self-contained little segment of, of the program Yeah. So, so I just kept coming up with that ideas for items that had to do with comics and then of course uh, it became natural to interview the, the cartoonists, <laughs> and then I started adapting their comic strips to um, uh, to radio. I did little radio plays, and it was very difficult to find strips, you know, individual Sunday pages or whatever, that were um, you know not too visual, where, mm-hmm. where if you could, it had to be able to tell it in in sound. Uh, but so I would just comb through them, and I would I would find things. And uh, then I, I had a budget, so I, I, I was able to use music and sound effects and hire actors. This is back when CBC used to get money.
1: <laughs> and I think <laughs> oh, we money. should, for the American listeners, CBC in Canada, especially at this point, everybody listened to CBC.
2: Now you say everybody? No, listened? no, at, at that point. Well, back then, yes. Yeah, all across the country, especially, strangely enough, in the in the rural areas or small yeah. town areas. Yeah, it was very, very... National. And soon I started getting letters and postcards from from people, you know, from some places I'd never heard of, talking with me about, you know, what you said about Fred Astaire the other day, I say such and such. It it, it, it was was a dialogue, you know. (laughs) So then I started writing for magazines, uh, national magazines, all of them now defunct, but in there in Toronto. And so then I started doing about... Articles about <laughs> comics and things, and I, then I started to be given a budget from the magazines who had a lot of money in those days to fly out and interview people in person. So I, I was paid. I was paid to go and meet my heroes.
1: I'm a little jealous. Not gonna, not gonna, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, hide that. I'm a little jealous. <laughs> well,
2: yeah, They're all dead now too, so you can't go and get them. No. But I, yeah, I met Milton Kniff, and I, I mel- I met. Uh, Floyd Godforsen and Harold Foster and Russ Manning and John Dirks, who's the son of Rudy Dirks, who invented the Cats and Jammer kids, and uh, Walter Ball, the Canadian cartoonist who did Rural Root. And I don't even remember who all. Plus, I continued doing uh, interviews over the phone or through a studio link, too. Um, So, yeah, so I got paid. I guess they paid my expenses to go do the interviews. Mm -hmm. But then I would get paid to write the article, and then because I had done taped interviews I also got paid to do a segment on the, uh, on the radio so that was I got paid I got my expenses paid plus I got paid twice to, for the same material
1: <laughs> and, that's, that's a scam that I'm sure I will yeah <laughs> you know, I wish radio was were,
2: were still open to, to real productions they don't have the money now at CBC yeah. they can only sit in front of a mic and talk so, but it was great it was just I mean I met those people I learned a lot I had fun producing radio writing it and producing it and and I got paid it was, it was just like hog heaven it was just terrific and I was working on Neil at the same time so I was I was a busy little beaver
1: and some of the like the, I know the Hal Foster interview is still used um in the Prince Valiant collection. Yeah, uh,
2: um yeah the, what do they call it Fantagraphics have reprinted and reprinted Several times, many of my, my interviews. In the, first of all, in the Congress Journal, but then in, in their books,
1: too. And I think one of the reasons I really want to kind of emphasize that is not many folks had interviewed these cartoonists, um, presumptuously speaking.
4: It
2: seems not. It yeah. seems like no other interviews have, have surfaced. Not
1: long, in-depth ones, anyway. Like, how long, say, you go and see Floyd Gottforson... How long would a conversation with him be? Oh, maybe about six hours. Oh, Jesus!
2: Yeah. <laughs> I just had lots of tapes and you know, kept clicking them into the machine.
1: <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. Well, it was
2: so much fun to talk to these people, and I learned a lot about interviewing. That uh, you have to re- inter- you have to what I was trying to say you have to record a lot before yeah. the subject loosens up and, and forgets the tape recorder is on. And that's why I would just keep it going and going, because six hours is such an unreasonable amount of time that they can't focus on, on, any more on, I'm being interviewed. I have yeah. to say this correctly. Uh, so it just got really loose, and I did that on purpose, of course. Yeah, so, yeah, I I, some of those people must have been interviewed by other people, but maybe nobody had the...
1: I can un- see like Milton Kniff, obviously, being interviewed... Mm-hmm. For, for millions of times, yeah. yeah, but like someone like Floyd Garferson because he worked in such relative obscurity mm-hmm. for so long, being the unnamed Mickey Mouse right. um, artist, you know, mm-hmm. that would have been unusual.
2: Yeah, I think it was, and, and I, I guess it seems that even the best known artists like Harold Foster, for some reason, nobody had done really long interviews. I think that's that's what makes my interviews. Popular because they people really like them still. It's because they just go on and on. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I think the original recordings, or at least copies of the recordings, are with the the, the the Billy Ireland. Yes,
2: yes, they have the tapes. The
1: I don't have them anymore. They have them, <laughs> and uh, hopefully one day they'll pry them out of storage.
2: <laughs> Didn't you say that they had copied some of them?
1: Yeah. yeah. I don't know what they're planning on doing with it. Right. I don't know if that's official. <laughs> oh, well.
2: yeah. I want to ask them to, to give me copies, digital copies. I was a little premature in, in donating 10,000 boxes of comics, effluvia Fluvia, to the library. I just couldn't live with it anymore. You know, It was too much stuff.
1: So they got a lot of goodies. Yeah. <laughs> no, I definitely hope that, that information gets shared, because for me... One of the really neat things about that, especially, is having that voice,
2: hearing their voices,
1: yeah, yes, yes. and like, um, being able to go back and go, okay, that's what that person sound like, because it just, um, even myself, like I remember I've interviewed cartoons, like I interviewed Spain, and that New York accent oh, yeah. he has, yeah. like from Boston, New York, or not Boston, um, Buffalo, New York, I'm sorry, Buffalo. I didn't mean to call you Boston. Um, <laughs> but, like, he has this really interesting accent. Uh-huh. And it's like, I just didn't know what to expect. And to hear that coming right. from him. Yeah. You know, it's. Well, yeah, obviously,
2: it should go without saying, but I'm going to say it, which is that a person's voice is a huge part of how they convey their personality. You don't even really have to see the face. If you have to make a choice between seeing the face and hearing the voice, take the voice. Yeah, you got know, to learn a lot about this person.
1: Yeah, it's 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 also interesting um, as an interviewer, or even someone reading interviews or listening to interviews. It's a different interview when it's transcribed than when you mm-hmm. hear, mm-hmm. Um, because you get these subtle nuances. You get like you you know subtly agreeing there, going hmm, which is something you won't get in the in the in the transcript. Probably not. You know no. that'll get that'll get dumped. Right. Um, and, yeah, that's, like, what's... Where does someone kind of focus on what their interest is, and where does it go, and, yeah. I'm, I'm going on a tirade, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, something I'd like to
2: mention, just because it's it seemed vital and also very interesting to me. Growing up, loving comics, wanting to do comics, I took it for granted, for some reason, that it was an art form and and recognized as such. Yeah. And yet... In general, <clears throat> especially in the sixties and seventies, people just absolutely dismissed the possibility of comics being worth anything. Just a mere diversion, you know, no, n- no more permanent or or uh, impressive than a bag of popcorn. It was just something that you ate and threw away the bag. And I didn't think about that. It's, that's not how I that's not how I regarded comics. I regarded Barks and Kniff and all those great people. You know, as, as truly great artists. Well, the weird thing was when I interviewed all of them, every single one of these people, they didn't think that at all. They had this modesty, which, but I think it was more than modesty. Modesty I can understand. But they just... I mean, even Kniff, for God's sake, and Foster, they would just say, oh, it's just for selling newspapers. It's not worth anything. This is not art. You know, I, this is, I'm, just, I'm just trying to sell newspapers. And they would not accept the idea on any terms, in any way whatsoever, to any extent, that they deserved the title of artist.
1: I remember you told me once about, how, like, how Foster didn't keep his pages. Yeah, no, not at all. And they were all. huge.
2: Yes, yeah, he had one. He had one original, but he used to do them in thirds because they they were so damn big. These had been fastened back together or fastened together to make it a whole page. He kept it standing up in the back of a closet (laughs) because he had nowhere else to put it. And it was taller than
1: him. Yeah, Gigantic pages. And like the amount of work that he would have to put in for something like that. Yeah, Apparently
2: he would put in 60 to 80 hours every week.
1: Jesus. Yeah.
2: And then, this is one of the more... Horrible stories that I've ever heard, it, it was common, no, I shouldn't say common, it was standard, it was what was done when you were a cartoonist in those days, a strip cartoonist, you would finish it, send it off by mail or whatever to the syndicate office, in yep. pre- presumably in New York, and after it had been photostatted, then they would just kind of shove it into a back room and often throw them out. People yeah. used to find you know, originals in garbage cans outside the syndicate offices. But the the most amazing story was that they they had so many pages coming in every day that they got piled up in the stock room or in some back room and the young employees, the office boys and so on, used to because the Prince Valiant pages were so big, they used to slide off a table onto the floor using the Prince Valiant pages as their as their slide. <laughs> Isn't that just stunning, <laughs> you know? It's like Having Michelangelo paintings that, that that you use to mop up spilled coffee. Yeah. Anyway, it shows you the complete turnaround in how people regard
1: yeah. comic art now. know you told me once about you went to a show in France by N- accident. Y-
2: yeah. Well, I knew I knew what I was doing once I once I got there. It wasn't an accident. Like, oh, why did I walk through that door? But yeah, I was I was.
1: It was an unexpected surprise and, that it was in.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was in. Uh, 1967, the spring of 1967, and of course I was in Paris. <laughs> I just happened to be in
1: Paris. <laughs> um, Better you were there then than say a year later, probably.
2: Well, it certainly revolutionized my, my life to some extent. I was walking down the street um, by myself, and I was walking along the side, one side of, of the Louvre, a big famous museum. And there was a door there and a big, huge sign. I wish I could remember exactly what it said, but it was the name of this exhibition that was on in this sort of separate gallery from the main Louvre. And it was of American, and Canadian maybe, newspaper strips. And I guess some comic books too, but it was an actual... You know, God... You know, when I'm I'm trying to say this, an, an actual gallery show in the Louvre yeah. of comics. And this is absolutely unheard of. And um, so I went in, of course, and uh, it's now a, a famous show that is still referred to as kind of a watershed in France as well as for many North Americans. Uh, have you heard of Maurice Horn?
1: I think I have something.
2: Well, he, he was a, a prominent writer about comics and sort of anthologizer for a number of years. Yeah. Because of this show, he became well-known. He was the organizer uh, of, of this show. And so it was the first time I'd ever seen big, beautiful originals. Yeah. And it was the first time I'd ever seen people taking it seriously. So I bought the catalog, which of course I still have, and that turned into a book that got translated into English eventually, as a, just as a book. But from that day forward, I was really... Uh, much more encouraged and inspired yeah. to, to do comics thinking, okay, so, I'm not the only one that thinks this is worth something. Is it? So it was very exciting.
1: I could imagine a show like that um, having an effect on some of the Mattel Herlant, um cartoonists probably as well. Like I'm, I'm sure. Mobius yeah. would have been at the kind of perfect age for that. Right. Yeah. Um, a lot of those folks.
2: Now, of course... In France, by that time, comics were extremely popular and had been, I guess, for many decades. Mm-hmm. But that's when Asterix came along. is in that in those years, um, and uh, what's what's his name? Hugo Pratt. He's, he's an Italian, I guess. Yeah. But, but yeah, so so comics actually were well respected in Europe long before they were well respected over here.
1: <laughs> but even someone like Pratt is someone that takes a lot from uh, American comics. Oh, yeah, absolutely. From yeah. BF.
2: Yeah, yeah. There are some some uh, European artists who really relate almost directly to to North American stuff. But they, I think it's great that they came up with their own styles. There's a lot of comics from Europe that don't look anything like American stuff. Yeah, and I think that's wonderful. And that was the first time when I was over there that I saw how beautifully printed comics are in in Europe. You know, we were seeing, still seeing, just you know, hope paper with off-register colors and faded grayish look to the whole thing and suddenly I saw my god I'll never forget I opened an asterisk book first time I'd ever seen one and I remember the page I opened to and I still look at it from time to time it was a scene that was taking place by the at the seaside on the beach and the the gradation of different colors in the water as it moved around just stunned me. I thought, "My God, this looks like a real world." They're they're taking cartoon drawings and making the colors so subtle and so so real looking that brings it up into into much more of a, se- a sense of reality of, a, of it seeming to be a real a real thing that's happening. I was just so excited, and it took like another I don't know what fifteen or twenty years before stuff started being printed like that mm-hmm. in North America. It, my eyes just bulged out.
1: Yeah, it wasn't until after until late 70s, early 80s, really, until after, quote-unquote, graphic novels. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was some there
2: was some, well-printed comics in uh, Heavy Metal magazine and, yeah. and National Lampoon. That was where it first reared its ugly head. But... Uh, or its beautiful head. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, the first graphic novels on. I was looking at them the other day. Embarrassing. they just... Stupid stories, just pulpy stories. People didn't get it. Yeah, you can, you can, print it nice and big now, and it have nice bright colors, and it can be longer than a normal comic book. But nobody thought, and it could be a good story to tell. Her intelligent writing. No, no, forget that. It was still mystery stories, and I can't even typify what they were.
1: Just pulp. Yeah, you no, know, I, um, I was digressing to folks about one thing in particular. I'm going to leave that off right now. I'll, I'll, I'll digress to you later. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna, I'm sorry. You're about some, uh, some of the particular um, early graphic novel? And uh, one thing I know, like I've talked to George Metzger about um, who quote-unquote did the first book called a graphic novel. He's like, I didn't do the first one. Lynn Ward was doing books years ago. <laughs> well, that's, that's true. Yeah, yeah. But I think
2: when graphic novels started appearing with that name on them, mm-hmm. The thing that makes it separate, in a way, I guess, from what's is, is—is it Lind Ward or Ward Lind? Anyway, Lind Ward, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Because the graphic novels that we know from the '80s and onward, they arose within the comics world, yeah. and you know, Lind Ward had to deal with the, the real world. Yeah. But <laughs> well, these were coming up by artists that people knew, and and they looked familiar enough. Styles were familiar enough that people could say, okay, I see the connection between this new form and the old form. Yeah. And, and so
1: that's why it caught on, I think, finally. Yeah. I kind of see, like, Milk Gross's work more of a, a uh, precedence in Lin Ward, anyways. That's, that's a, a, a good point, because, yeah, I've got that book he did. Does he do more than one... He done her wrong?
2: Yeah, I've got that. I'm trying to remember if he did any other
1: book length things I think that's the only book length thing and then he did lots of comic books lots and lots and lots yeah yeah but
2: uh, I don't yeah that's interesting he did put out that he 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 done her wrong or she did him wrong or whatever and but but there wasn't another one that just happened and then nobody did it again
1: for a long time yeah for some reason (laughs) uh, and then there were some interesting things um in the early 70s uh Oh god, his name's totally escaping me. Um, and it was p- published out of Toronto um, The Cage and The Projector. Oh, why is his name escaping me? And they yeah. just like, republished uh, The Cage, um, oh, really? Coach House books.
2: It was Coach House who published them to begin with, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah I, I remember those now. I hadn't given them a thought for decades, but yeah, for some reason I remember The Projector. But uh, yeah, I don't know who did it either
1: know his name, and I don't know why it's not my head. I apologize to um, well, he's passed away now anyways. Whoever so it was. He's not going to be offended.
3: I'll, <laughs> I'll
2: tell you what, I'll be
1: offended. Okay. Okay. Um, now going back to you. Oh yeah, me. Talking about you, Yeah, because you are the guest, um, not the nameless uh, creator I can't remember. Um, uh, <laughs> how did kind of bringing in, um, these different things kind of influence you as a creator uh, talking to cartoonists, you know, being able, because like, let's be honest, having a six-hour conversation with Floyd Garferson is not something many other cartoonists would have. Um, And I'm wondering about having these talks with cartoonists, um, would you approach them yourself at points as a cartoonist and kind of Getting knowledge from that, or I didn't
2: quite understand. Would, would I approach them? What do you mean by that?
1: Um, during your interviewer process, uh-huh. um, would you ask questions from like a cartoonist point of view? Oh yeah,
2: yeah. I, I I made it very clear that I was also a aspiring at least cartoonist, and 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 th- they were good enough most of the time to to sort of you know switch modes, and it was like. Cartoonist to cartoonist in the conversations. Yeah, a lot of the time, which was very flattering. <laughs> you know? um, but um, I mean, that, I guess that's that was where I was really truly coming from. You know? yeah. So so the questions I asked were not sort of superficial questions. They were, you know, they were they were how do you do this and why do you do that and what do you think about this way of doing things about this and that way of doing things. And
1: so yeah, I dug, dug deep. Huh. Did that affect your own um, creative process?
2: Yes, I think it did, although not in any direct way. I can't say, and I came home from interviewing and suddenly I did this. But um, seeing it from the point of view of the world of professional cartooning, especially the, the then-dying-off, older, retiring generation of, <laughs> of, of, of cartoonists, um, it really gave me a feeling for, for what it... At least had been like to be a professional in in the field. They, the, you know, not only the, all the famous stories about the deadlines and the ghosts and everything, but also to get back to what I said before, the thing about their attitude was so surprising to me that they didn't take themselves seriously at all. They could not; they were constitutionally unable to to take themselves seriously, which was really odd. I, f- I found so it made me more conscious. Of my attitude being being different, and I, st- I did meet other cartoonists of my age, mostly in Toronto, who had more of the old fashioned attitude. I probably was the most hoity toity of all of them, you know with my nose in the air <laughs> This is art you know? <laughs> but it um, yeah, really it helped me in my own mind to position myself on the map with the other cartoonists in the world. And I was sort of way off to the side someplace. But I, was, but I always kept a direct connection. My, you know, my inspirations were always from the mainstream. Yeah. But then I took it somewhere else, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've never been too thrilled by super experimental comics. Mm-hmm. I, want, I want them to be comics still.
1: You're, you're very much into the kind of, the, I guess, playful action.
2: Playful action. You mean yeah. what I would depict? Yeah. Well, so you're referring to my comics, and you mean you? I, I'm not quite sure what you mean. You mean you mean when I tell the story?
1: Yeah, your your comic stories. Um, you know, they're 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 narratives. Um, they're playful. There's action to it. Um, mm-hmm. Well, certainly isn't talking heads. (laughs) (laughs) No. It's talking
2: horses. (laughs) And and talking cats. And And a talking talking doll. doll. (laughs) Yeah. And everybody tap dances. (laughs) But yeah, I guess my comics are pretty kinetic, which I like. I I like moving the energy around on the page. Uh, It's something that I I always was aware of. And actually, of all people, uh, Russ Manning taught me a lot about this, about directing... The, the, the reader's eye on a page, now you can really direct the reader's eye to almost any place, in any direction if you really know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have to just be you know, left to right, top to, to bottom panels. You can whirl them around. I, I did a strip one, just normal size or shape, well, not normal size, but shape,, long, long horizontal strip with one tier. but there was just enough room for me to pull this little stunt. Where I, I it was was all one picture, but I divided it in half down the middle horizontally. There was a small gutter, so there was an upper part of the picture and a lower part of the picture, but it was the same picture. Yeah, and I directed the eye across the top, you know, left to right, and then back right to left across the bottom, and it really worked. I really managed to do it. People had to read it. That way, you know? <laughs> so um, yeah, action is, is to me terribly important. It, it that's that's most of a lot of what tells the story. Mm-hmm. The characters are usually talking about something else, or just mouthing off. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, a, a, a reviewer um, said about my comics fairly recently that something I didn't even notice. He no- he noticed that. I never use thought balloons. Never, ever, ever. I've never used one that I can yeah. remember anyway. Um, and I show what's going on. I don't talk about it. And the characters, if they think, oh, should I go around that corner and up the stairs, or should I not? Well, I make it clear that what's going on without them having a balloon saying, should I go up those stairs? Yeah. yeah. So
1: but I didn't know I was doing that until somebody pointed it out. I didn't even think about it either, but uh, <laughs> I know... Um, they're like Alan Moore, for I think for most of his career, did not use any thought balloons. Mm-mm. Um, partly because it also you're providing too much. Yeah,
2: yeah. You're not asking a lot of your actors. Yeah. Because that's what I think of the characters as. You know, <laughs> they need to act. I guess because I'm all also really deeply into uh, animation, cartoon animation. I think of it that way I, I often, without really consciously thinking about it, but I, I when I write a story and draw the page, I think of it as a movie,
3: yeah.
2: a lot of the time that's what i'm trying to trying to depict. I want the reader to feel that they're seeing an animated cartoon mm. and uh, then of course with with dance, you know you 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 have to think, well what am I going to show here with dance? I didn't want to just show a bunch of flailing arms and legs and a random impression of dance, I actually inven- invented real choreography because by that time i had been had been dancing and studying Fred in the class I- I- yeah we're dancing in the class yeah yeah um, so I actually invented choreography along the lines of what Fred Astaire would have would have designed, and then I would draw the figures it, it, with enough um, sort of continuity from from pose to pose that you could run your eye along and then down the page and actually see the dance, you know, this pose, then this pose, then this pose. I was so proud of myself for for doing that.
1: (laughs) I remember you have just the the row of the feet, just like the legs twirling. Oh yeah, that's right. With uh, with Mademoiselle Poupée. Mademoiselle Poupée. Poupée.
4: your feet on the ground don't let your hopes go flying high what goes up must come down and that's including you and i your flaming passion is deflated overnight success belated better knocks right cheering up today your road led to a cul-de-sac end And your rainbow to the back end Better not try cheering up today <laughs> Don't ask the sun to shine in Keep wearing that frown Don't ever relax your grip You might as well leave your sunny side down And keep a loose upper lip When two fates at last were blending Someone changed the happy ending Better not try cheering up today.
0: Oh, Mr. Sophie, I'm feeling better already. you're
4: Missing Appointed, a song, my dear. But I suppose hope springs eternal, whether he likes it or not. Come on now, get miserable. Oh,
0: very well. Everything you've ever tried will be forgotten when you find you. Try cheering up today. Lovely, my dear. Oh, i
4: see when the sun's ignition turns up. Everything on earth will burn up. Better not try cheering up today. Okay. True, True lovers love won't reunite. Clouds will, will roll by. by. Nightingales, Nightingale's will, will not sing. If you look up, rain spits in your eye. Your it might as well, well not be spring. spring. Try to give up all your hope, and you better save your strength for coping. Better not try cheering up today. Hey, what's going on? You guys can't sing without me. Yes, and what about me?
0: We are singing to make ourselves not to be happy. Can you think of something unhappy?
3: Sure, we didn't get the big banana. I like bananas more than honey, but I can't get them without money. Better not try cheering up today.
4: I've been enough of blonde hair beauty. Stay home and do my duty Better not try tearing out today Don't ask the sun to shine in Keep wearing that frown Don't ever relax your grip Might as well leave your sunny side down Keep a loose upper lip yeah. <laughs> Instead of ending up in clover We're broke and the story's over Better not, not try cheering up Drink up and drain that bitter cup
2: here's a little trivial piece of information that I just remembered remember when we were talking about the show at the Louvre
3: Yeah.
2: there was two guys that organized it and I couldn't remember the second guy's name and now I do the first one was Maurice Horn the second one was Pierre Coupery and they were stalwarts of the comic fan scene in France uh, for quite a number of years before this exhibition happened and then they continued to be sort of leading lights so just thought they'd drop that other name. Mm-hmm. It's history. People need to know these things. It's
1: important. Um, as a, uh, as a, an historian, or at least someone with a history degree who, uh-huh, you know, pretends to be an historian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> originally, Neil was a comic strip, a newspaper strip, right? Um, and you actually ran a syndicate.
2: Uh, yeah, that's a whole really long story. Full of thud, thud and blunder, but... Uh,
1: <laughs> I know, uh, our, our, uh, we haven't talked too much about it, but uh, Dave Sim mentioned that you rejected him.
2: Not me, I didn't know anything about that. The, the, the syndicate started before I got into it. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I was still, I was living here in Vancouver, and um, the fellow who was like the most energetic behind the syndicate um, was Jeff Wakefield. And uh, he, he recruited a bunch of other artists. I think they'd all met at at the um, art school which Jeff completely forgotten the name of. But anyway, <laughs> so Jeff and three or four other guys started the syndicate. And then then they heard about me, and I was syndicating, neo my, myself from yep. here. And so two years, or year no, year and a half, I guess, went by with me still being here and them out there. And then I suddenly decided one day that I really should move to Toronto because if you especially in the seventies if you, if you wanted to be at all prominent or successful in, in any kind of media in Canada you had to go to Toronto Yeah. so I realized that so I went to Toronto and of course I immediately got in touch with Jeff we'd been communicating before that and decided to join forces and um, so Jeff and I became the ones really running the syndicate um, so it must have been before I got there that Dave
1: rejected. <laughs> I think he did okay. I think he was fine.
2: Yeah, yeah, he got over it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but he was wounded, no doubt. Oh, I'm sure he's constantly wounded. Um, yeah. And when you um, eventually, with Dave were published in Sub uh, Issues Service. Yeah. And um, was that your first time doing regular comic book comic?
2: Well, um, almost the first time. Um, after several years, it was like, between between my own syndicate efforts and then also uh, the syndicate in Toronto, which was, by the way, GLP Publications, Great Lake Productions or something. Um, between the, those two things, it, I'd been doing it for four years, selling to Canadian weeklies only, small town weeklies. Um, but it was, Tapering off. The, 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 we weren't making any new sales and the papers were slowly cancelling and it, the writing was on the wall. You know. So, um, just at that time, there's a guy whose name I've forgotten who decided he was going to be publishing annuals, Canadian children's content in annual form every Christmas and uh, one of them was the Canadian Comics Annual, and the other was the Canadian Children's Annual, two a year. They only lasted for two years total. But um, I forgot how, what the connection was, how they got to me. But anyway, they wanted some of my material done in, in comic book form, because, of course, that's what... It's a, it's a book, you know. So I was quite surprised. I had to really think, oh, gee, if I'm going to do comic books... What are they going to be like? And so it took me a couple of years of, of figuring that out. Uh, and then, uh, I think after the second year of that, um, there was a an, an exhibit of comic art uh, at U of T and, um, with some of my stuff there from the second book. Um, and Dave Sims saw
1: that exhibit and got in touch with me. And, okay.
2: And the rest is history.
1: He, he I, I was presuming it was Denny that had contacted you, but it was...
2: Uh, well, I don't remember when they actually uh, like, phoned me or wrote me or whatever they did. I don't remember who it was. Oh, okay. But, I mean, because they were married at the time, so yeah. it could have been either of them. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, well, I wanted to say a word about my, my uh, newspaper strips. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started out trying to do it as a comedic story. Um, but then when I moved back east and started working with Jeff... Um, they were all doing, uh, gag strips, you know, because we were, <laughs> with the syndicate. We were only doing one strip a week because these are weekly newspapers. So they were all doing gag strips, and I, and I must say, I, I I realized that's my cell phone. Just a minute, I'll turn that off. I'm supposed to be in airplane mode here, aren't I? Jesus. Okay. So <laughs> they were. So they, they were all doing gag strips, and and I thought, well, you know we could probably sell I could sell Neil more easily if it wasn't so big it was a two tier strip when I yeah. was doing it as a, as a comedic story um, sort of like Starhawks whatever whatever that was called um, so I decided okay I better do for, gag format only one trouble I cannot write gags I can write funny but in people doing things you know in, in the dialogue and in the action but I can't write setup, up intermediate statement punch at the end I just don't write punchlines. I just don't... And I don't have the kind of comedy in me that's all about, you know, what what happened at, the, at work today, and you know, or, or how, you know, how frustrated you are with your husband or how frustrated you are with your children or, you know, that kind of everyday really, really middle-of-the-road, middle-brow, middle-class, middle-everything, just stupid, almost funny little things. I just couldn't do that at all. And so... I did something <laughs> what I, what I started doing, what I said I was doing <laughs> was I said these are not really comic strips yeah these these symbolize comic strips these are this, this like i would I would take a a type of gag like that would be a common type of gag, but I would leave out the the um motivation and and I would leave out the end I would just do like a situation that had only a middle uh, or just other silly stuff like that where I was dissecting the form of a comic strip without actually trying to do the one-two punch form. So uh, that's what I did for several years. Completely incomprehensible comic strips. Mostly incomprehensible, anyway. Uh, I thought they were great. (laughs) I loved doing that.
1: (laughs) So... Have you ever seen... Is it Garfield they do? People have done where they've chopped up Garfield. Oh, Garfield
2: without Garfield.
1: There's that, but there's also one with where they'll take it and they'll like, put different endings. Oh, yeah, I know. I haven't seen that one. Even Garfield without Garfield's pretty great.
2: It, it is, because it, it's another fine example of a meaningless cartoon. Yeah. If you didn't know what was going on, you didn't know Garfield and you didn't know Garfield without Garfield, and if you just came upon one of these things... It'd be somebody talking to someone who's not there uh, and action not happening because there was a big blank side of the panel. Yeah, it's a wonderful idea. I, I love it when people
1: take comics apart. I don't know what Jim Davis has thought about it. I'm curious. Mm. I'm sure the, he had some opinions on Monday. On a Monday? Oh, on a Monday. Why on a Monday? Garfield hates Mondays. Oh, <laughs> I don't
2: read Garfield at all. So... <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Oh, back in the 60s, there was a guy who really built himself or thought of himself as an artist, gallery-type artist. I don't remember his name. But he took to cutting up Dick Tracy pages and strips and pasting them together in weird combinations. He called it Tricky Cad. Do you, have you heard of Tricky Cad? No. Uh, that was the name of his comic strip It was entirely made up of, of cut-up Dick Tracy's. It remember. sounds familiar. Well, it ran in some underground papers at that time, but he really conceived of it
1: as a you know, conceptual art project or something yeah. like that. There was um, another name that's escaping me, the fellow who, um, it's really bad, it's, uh, what, what did he do? He um, was this really odd guy who no one knew anything about him, and when he died his landlords found all his art. Oh. Um, and he's like a no-bra not no-bra but he's like a folk art kind of big name and um, he uh, what I've seen his work, Vivian Girls is a story it's like this like thousands of page graphic novel that he's doing, <laughs> for lack of a better term and he would take the heads from like John Stanley comic strips like that oh, kind yeah. mm-hmm. and like use that as the heads of the female figures <laughs> in the thing but he was like very odd unusual man D- did, did he
2: think he was doing nor- normal good work or was he trying to be avant-garde and peculiar well we don't know you don't know okay
1: yeah. um, I, I think he was just he, he it was very like primitive based just like having to do this work and get it done mm-hmm. when I remember the name you'll know who I'm talking about probably mm. um, but like because there were some people that kind of knew him he was like a, high school janitor he was like very old man um, and died in like a poor house he was doing these very (laughs) odd things yeah and he had this like room in this rooming house just filled with art that he created and like people were going to throw it out would would you call it outsider art yeah Uh Yeah. you don't
2: see too many outsider artist cartoonists no because they're just cartoonists yeah they're cartoonists (laughs) they're all crazy (laughs) 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 I I was just remembering speaking of the 60s in 1968, I guess it was, that I, uh, when I read about R. Crumb
4: mm-hmm. and
2: hadn't seen his stuff yet because he, he wasn't being published in Vancouver, <laughs> um, so I sent down to an address that I somehow got a hold of and ordered all his comics that I could get from him personally. He mailed them back to me with oh, nice. his, his lettering on the envelope, and then I discovered that All of the best underground cartoonists who I was just learning about were being published in New York, in the East Village Other. And I took out a subscription to that and had it for quite a number of years. So I had a big collection of all the, you know, tear sheets of all the great underground artists in the early years, but I gave it away to a friend of mine. I don't have that collection anymore. (laughs) You just can't have everything. You just can't keep
1: everything. No, my girlfriend would say that. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> daily
2: what's no, what I gather she says to you is that yes you can keep everything <laughs>
1: <laughs> no no no, no. Uh, we have discussions <laughs> I see
2: <laughs> it's a horrible disease this uh, collecting that's, that's a big part of my life these days but
1: You uh, still have quite a collection of tear sheets, right? Yes, in that trunk in my living room that I've never opened for you. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's it's a big trunk, and it's jam-packed full of Sunday pages. Uh, I think the oldest one I have is not as old as I'd like, but I think it's 1911. Wow. But they mostly go from early 20s up through to about 1960, which is my golden era for comics, for yeah. newspaper comics. It's just so wonderful. When I do want to see them for some reason, I open argh, open the open the trunk and take out a big stack, you know, okay, let's look at these Prince Valiants. And I unfold them. Oh yeah, or or tons of Milton Kinev and, and also lots and lots of not well known strips. Ones that I remember, or everybody's heard of most of them, at least a little bit. But it's so, so nice to see, to not always look at the stars. Yeah. Because, it, you know, there's a lot of good work, a huge amount of good work that lots of people did.
1: Yeah. It
2: was a wonderful golden era for cartooning.
1: Who were some particulars, like, that you really, really enjoyed? When I was a kid? Just now, if, like, you can go, okay, here's a cartoonist you haven't heard of, Robin. Ah. Okay, uh, what's that, i trying to remember his last name. Dudley Fisher. You don't know Dudley don't Fisher? Don't know Dudley Fisher.
2: You don't know him from Adam. He or did, Eve, or Eve. Well, it would have been Adam in this case. Um, he did a strip called "Right Around Home with Myrtle," and <laughs> it's a great name. Yeah, <laughs> great name. Yeah. it was a a Sunday page mostly. He did he did do dailies, but nobody really noticed those. Every every week, there was he had this huge cast of characters in a neighborhood. In You'd get into their houses or into their stores and they'd all be interacting and talking but it was always a bird's eye view picture. Every week it would be like the camera elevated up and looking down at a scene of 20 or 30 people all interacting and talking about different situations. And, uh, yeah, that right around home was Myrtle by Dudley Fisher. <laughs> yes,
1: I'm really curious about that. The, the bird's eye view thing sounds really unusual.
2: Yeah, I've got a lot of that if you want. I can give you some digital copies, too. Yeah, I'd love to. See I've got that. Lots of them. Uh, let me see, who else did I love? King Aru, you know King Aru? The Jack name Kent.
1: It's, it's been familiar. reprinted
2: to some extent now by uh, IDW. Okay. Or whatever they're called. Dean, Dean's publishing company.
1: Yeah.
2: Dean, what's his last
1: name? Dean. Malally. Malone, something like that. Yeah, yeah I think it's Dean I've, anyway. I've picked up his uh, Alex Toth books. They're pretty. Oh, right, fantastic yeah. and big and big and expensive. Yeah, yeah.
2: I haven't been able to buy the two kangaroo volumes so far because I don't have any money. But I'm going sooner or later. <laughs> so let's see what other ones did I love. I'll tell you what I didn't like. I didn't like Joe Palooka. It's just so boring, and mm-hmm. the characters were so repulsive, so ploying <laughs> what, are, what? Isn't it funny how you, you? Oh, I know. I've got a real, a real favorite that most people have never heard of. It was the topper until it became the bottomer for Blondie. It's Colonel Potterby and the Duchess. It's a pantomime strip, all silent, never any balloons at all. These two characters, the Duchess, who seems to be this kind of middle-aged single woman, and her often-on boyfriend. Colonel Potterby, and they just, they're toodling around in different adventures every week. They're going somewhere in a car or in a boat or walking down the street. It's just little, silly, slapstick, pantomime uh, stuff happens. It's so well done. And the characters are so outlandish, the things that they do. For, for a colonel and a duchess to do the things that they do, they'll, they'll do anything, basically. It, it, it makes it very surreal. And I've always loved mime. Yeah, I've done a lot of mime stuff in in Neil The Horse, and I would do more again. I've always loved the um, commedia dell'arte of of uh, re- Renaissance Italy. Do you know what what that is? No. It's a theater form that really is the foundation of a lot of the the comedy figures that we that we know today. Well, that's where Harlequin came from. Oh, okay. And Pantaloni and all these standard comedy characters that went on for generation after generation. And many, many people would would do them, and it was um, standard characters that everybody knew as soon as the actor walked in with a certain mask, everybody knew what he was supposed to be and yeah. what his what his um, relationship was with all the other characters so it was like a wonderful slapstick satire, really, because there were you know a lot of um, a lot of not stereotypes but uh, just p- common types of people. There's the old rich old man who's a miser. There's the braggart soldier. There's the the fair young maiden, often the daughter of the of the skinflint, and um, she's of course w- wanting to run off with somebody. Uh, there's the the servant, the wily servant who's smarter than anybody. And uh, there's the the lovers, uh, Harlequin and and uh, what's what's my computer? Name. Oh, no, sorry, <laughs> I can't remember Harlequin's female counterpart I forget and mm. Pirette. so yeah so I think and they're linked to not only to comedy that came after them but the comedy that came before it was really rooted in Greek and Roman theater mm-hmm. They had the same way of, of using standard stock characters so I guess I'm saying that because it stemmed from Colonel Potterby and the Duchess <laughs> and uh um, Colonel Potterby and the Duchess. Yeah, I just love it. I, I, I get all the strips of those that I can
1: possibly find. They sound like characters off of Downton Abbey. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, they 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 could be. We're going to get a visit from Colonel Potterby and the Duchess are coming this week. <laughs>
2: but they don't say anything. No. So anyway, let me see if I can come up with one more obscure. Okay, this one's not too obscure. But I loved Otto Messmer, uh, Felix the Cat strips. He did beautiful big Sundays. Uh, Oh, some of the very, very early comics. That's my great lust these days, is for the comics from 1890s and 1910s. Um, Well, I just absolutely adore George McManus bringing up Father. But some of the old-time cartoonists, whose names are almost completely forgotten now, like Frederick Opper, who invented Happy Hooligan, and also invented hundreds (laughs) of other characters. And, um, well, of course, Wendell McKay. Um, but, uh, I, it's a guy whose name I don't know how to pronounce. It's O-U-T-C-A-U-L-T, Utkalt or something. Oh, yeah. He, he invented, uh, amongst other things, Buster Brown. Yeah. And, um, oh, and oh. he did, and he did uh, the Yellow Kid first, too, yeah. yeah. So, R-F Ootcult, um uh, uh, that is? Trying, I don't remember his first name, actually, but I don't know how you pronounce that name. I am horrible at pronunciations. Well, we'll just have to say, Mr. Yeah. Anyway, I I could dredge more out of my memory for I could go on forever. <laughs> <know>?
1: <laughs> I think, and I really value um, that knowledge of of this work um, of the early early stuff. Yeah, it's well, just of of all these different comic strips um 'cause like. What we see, we're still getting, um, you know, Dean's tastes from yeah. from there, from Fantagraphics. We're getting Kim Thompson's tastes. Um, they,
2: they seem to be pretty good.
1: They, But they're all each person's taste. Oh, right. And yeah. that's what I'm saying. So, like, you know, your interests equally valid. Um, but I don't run a publishing company. No. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> It sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah.
2: But, yeah, I don't think there's very many people around these days uh, who care very much about mm-hmm. those early strips. I mean, obviously there's some or the books wouldn't be coming out, like Peter Moreska's huge, beautiful volumes that he puts out yeah. at Sunday Press or whatever it's called.
1: Um, but we're seeing, we, I will say we were seeing more and more publishers taking on um, I didn't know this, but Dark Horse uh, is doing uh, su- doing the Sundays for Gasoline Alley, which for me, I'm very excited about, because I love those Sundays. I, I didn't know they were going to do that. I didn't either, and I saw it on Amazon. Well, Peter moresca
2: has published uh, one big book, on yeah. Sundays. I wonder which era and how complete
1: Dark Horse wants to do it. They are starting 1920. And they're doing, you know, however many pages they're going to fill the book. Oh, but they're going to do Sundays all the way up to when? I think. And they're called mm-hmm. Gasoline Alley, so they have the rights. They have the rights, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Because the uh, Marascara book is, uh, Walton's yeah. like, the Drone Quarterly books. Right. Yeah. So,
3: yeah.
2: But well, we haven't mentioned Crazy Cat, so I'll just mention it. Crazy Cat? Okay.
1: And Oops. on the note of Crazy Cat, yeah. um, I was getting a little bit of a Crazy Cat vibe from, uh, your character, Sophie the Cat. In his dialect oh, talk, and there was, was no there was no intention of that. No, no that
2: that the, Soapy's dialect, <laughs> whatever it is, language, whatever it is, it's just my, admittedly, you know, Hackneyed version of of the the, the Brooklyn accent, the, the 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 tough guy in the streets. You know, oh, okay. yeah, that's that's Soapy, uh, you know, he's a smart guy. He's the smartest guy in the world. Yeah, that's what's, that's what Neil thinks. Yeah. That, that Sophie's the smartest guy in the world and,
1: you know, I think he's right
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Neil's certainly not the smartest guy in the world no, but he's the best dancer <laughs> he's got built-in tap shoes he does, exactly
2: he has. <laughs> I used that joke once and that was the end of that <laughs> can't tell that one
1: twice oh, I just ruined it um, you, you just copied my joke I'm sorry, so. Catherine <laughs> um, we didn't you got, uh, you started doing the comic for, um... What was those two annuals? The, the annuals, oh, the children's. Yeah, yeah. And well, then you got connected with... with little, the, Dave and Denny. The, the Sims, yeah. at yeah, that point. at that point.
2: And yeah, and they proposed to me, after a lot of flailing around, trying to decide what they were going to propose to me, <laughs> finally, after about two years, they decided what they wanted to do, which was to publish Neil the Horse as a regular comic book. So I had, by that time, sort of had a lot, a lot of chance, a lot of time to think about doing it as a comic book. I had to really regroup and, and and think. Well, what would my aim be? You know, what kind of thing would it be? And I've always loved the old children's annuals that were especially popular in in Britain,
1: like the Rupert the Bear, like Rupert
2: the Bear, which I used to get every year. And I did get some other English ones too, because back in the fifties. Vancouver at least. And I think most of Canada were still very British. Yeah. So it was sort of automatic that all the children's annuals would be sold over here as well. So I used to get them and I loved them because not only did they have comics or at least stories with drawings, um, but they also had games and puzzles and articles and in the case, in the case of Rupert the Bear, uh, origami. Had, had origami <laughs> pages. It showed you how to do it. Because it turned out that Alfred Bestall, who was the artist and writer of Rupert, was the president of the British Origami Society. Oh, wow. So he would put a few pages of diagrams in each issue. And uh, I did a radio show on CBC about Rupert and Alfred Bestall, who was still alive at the time. And I sent him a tape of of the program when it was finished. And in it, I had talked about the origami in the in the... Rupert Books, and he wrote me back a letter thanking me and so on. And he said, "The British Origami Society is proud of you." <laughs> so that's one of my best, best compliments. And you know, I think I should put that on the back of if if, if, there ever, if there ever is a book. I think I should put that on the back. You know?
1: I, I, I like that. <laughs> I'm very pleased. You had some uh, some good uh, letters. You had a Will Eisner letter in the second issue, I think. I don't remember. Yeah. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> so you've got—I think you've got a pretty strong uh I sent—I sent my
2: comics uh, to Carl Barks quite often, and um, he wrote back some nice things. But then one time, I heard a story. I've forgotten who it was now. It was some person um, was actually at Carl Barks' house when the mail came one day, and one of the things that came was a Neil the Horse comic. So he, Carl Barks pulled it out, and proceeded to go through it and tell this guy, whoever he was, what you know. look at this, look, look, look how he did this, look how he did that, look, it's, so, it's so well done. You know. Complimenting my work. I wish I'd been there. I wish he'd tape, <laughs> taped it or something. You know.
1: That's amazing. Yeah.
2: yeah they turned from whatever they were doing, and Carl Brooks proceeded to compliment me. So, all right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we'll have a third-hand uh, quote on the back.
2: Yeah, I just I can make up anything. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's, a, there's a thing about uh, Harvey Kurtzman to always give everyone the exact same quote. well look, oh, Harvey, can I have a quote? It'll be the exact same oh, quote.
2: And, and, and what would it be?
1: It would be like the person's name is blah, 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 blah. Oh, really? Oh.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. I got a lot of nice comments uh, over the period of time that I was doing Neil. I never lacked for people liking it. I just liked for people buying it. So... What can you do? <laughs> but at the same time, I was working very hard also on trying to launch Neil into animation. Mm-hmm. It took, took up an enormous quantity of money, an enormous quantity of time, and all sorts of people's effort. <laughs> and I almost made it. I was, uh, what do they call it? Um, optioned. I was optioned three oh, okay. times in Hollywood. Two uh, animation studios and one network. But each time, it didn't make it through to the final, to the actual production. <laughs> which may not have been as bad as as it may seem, because that was in the absolute rock-bottom, most dismal period of commercial animation. It was in the era when what I was going to have to, if I wanted animation done, was going to have to be TV, it was going to have to be Saturday morning, and I would have been in there with the original My Little Pony and Care Bears and um, Muppet Babies, And
1: I don't even remember all of them. Care Bears, a Vancouver product. They did. And uh, I mentioned George Metzger earlier, who worked on that. And he doesn't have kind things to say about working on Care Bears. I'm sure
2: not. Was (laughs) it produced here? I didn't know that. I was in in Toronto by that time. But it was really a tough decision how to deal with it, or whether to deal with it. Because I didn't want to make that kind of cartoon. But there was no other kind of cartoon being made. This is before what sparked the revival of more classic animation was the release of Roger Rabbit. Suddenly, people were saying, oh, remember cartoons? Oh, they used to be so good. Oh, we don't have to do this crap anymore. And everything started coming back just after I had given up, basically, on on, uh, trying to get into animation. It it was the worst time in the period of animation ever. So it would have meant that Neil would have been turned into I don't know what.
1: You don't want to know.
2: Well, I think I can guess. But here's something nobody knows, or nobody's paying any attention to. In around uh, 1999 or 2000, Nirvana, evil studio, run by evil man, um, Michael Hirsch, who ought to be strung up. <laughs> oh, battery's getting right. low. Oh, That's
1: okay. We'll have another 20 minutes or so. Okay.
2: They stole Neil the Horse. They'd, they had optioned Neil the Horse back in that animation period.
3: Yeah.
2: A decade later, 1999, they put out a series and they syndicated it and made money on it and had merchandise. It was called um, Marvin, the tap-dancing horse, about this not very bright tap-dancing horse with his pal, the, the orange cat named Swifty, who would ride around on Marvin's oh back God. and they were in show business trying to make it now, Poupe wasn't in it, but the, the, the opening story that they used for their pilot was the same story that I did for my very first story of Neil the Horse in the, in the newspapers. And I took it to a lawyer in San Francisco to a, fir- a firm that copyright was one of their yeah. specialties, and they said they didn't think that I had a case. It strikes me that I do.
1: Have you ever talked to any Canadian lawyers?
2: No, I, I haven't been in the mood. But I think I will at some point.
1: Yeah. That's highly unfortunate.
2: I'm hoping what it will mean if I did take it to court. First of all, I would like to get $300 million. These are my terms. Secondly, I want to put Michael Hurst through a wood chipper.
1: (laughs) 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 She's joking. Really. No, I'm not. (laughs) 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 Anyway. Um... One of the aspects of Neil is uh, uh, Meda- Mademoiselle Poupet mm-hmm. is the fashion. It's the the, 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 fa- the the clothes. The fact that she does not have a singular outfit. Yeah,
2: she, well this was because of Barb Roush. She was my, my dear friend, the late Barb Roush. When I was just starting the Neil the Horse comics, I, w- I was living in L.A. for a while and I went to a meeting of the comic art professional society which I had joined and there was this woman um, about my age I guess maybe a touch older um, who had just moved to LA she'd been an art teacher all her life all her adult life in Flint, Michigan she, she, had, she had quit her job packed up everything she owned and driven to LA deciding to be a successful cartoonist yeah. and she did but her first job in LA was for me which was to help me with the, the, the fashions. I wanted, I wanted uh, Poupé to, to look good, and I'm not very good at fashions at all. Barb, on the other hand, was one of the original Katy Keene artists who used to send in drawings to Bill Waggin in the 50s, and he would put them in his comic book. And She was such a good artist. She could draw any type of costume for any type of figure from any era at doing anything. Yeah. I mean, if, I, if I said, no, I, I want to have Bulgarian shoemakers dancing with uh, Italian countesses, and this would be taking place in 1436 in Venice, she would know exactly what to draw. She never used any reference. She had it all in her head any kind of costume from anywhere. And her drawing was so beautiful, and she did it so fast. She was just a marvel. And she was a wonderfully eccentric, crazy person too. Unfortunately, <laughs> she died of cancer, and, and uh, I miss her a lot. But that's how the fashions and paper dolls came in. I just thought, oh, another thing, another thing to throw in, because as I said, like I, I copied, or I, I didn't say copied, but I fashioned my comic book format after the English annuals, where there's a little bit of everything. Yeah. And paper dolls, I thought, okay, that's another everything.
1: So that's why it was there. I don't really care about fashions that much, <laughs> but I thought, all oh, good. It was a definitely noticeable part, is, um, you know, not just the paper dolls, but uh, Poupé herself. Her, all the costumes. Yeah.
2: Yeah, she, Barb,
1: always did the costumes. <laughs> so, yeah, that was fun. And David Roman was the other person yes. that did a lot of work with you. On yes, that.
2: for, uh, I'm trying to think, how many years was that? about 20 years or something like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. He still lives in Toronto. Uh, And his role was very difficult to define. Um, He he really was a co-creator to a great extent because we would brainstorm so much stuff, and he was a big influence, telling me things I didn't know about all sorts of stuff in the world, including lots of comics. He loved a whole different type of comic than I did. He was the first one that ever told me about Will Eisner and The Spirit. And he loved all the old ECs and stuff like that. So I didn't actually want to do that kind of thing, but it was another perspective. Yeah. And he was very good at helping me develop the stories and think of uh, sort of what are, the, what, is, what are the moral implications of what we're doing in a story. He was a very, he was a very strict moralist, and I didn't yeah. mind that at all. And he was also a good artist. He would, he would do, help me with the inking mostly. And all the, all, all the backgrounds, all the architecture, oh, he was so good at that. Now I got to do it all, all myself if I'm ever going to draw again. <laughs> well,
1: no time like the present. <laughs> well, we'll see. I
2: I'm, might as well. I might as well mention that uh, since the battery's going, that um, I'm thinking more about doing more comics again than I, more than I ever have since I stopped twenty years ago. Just for those who came in late, I stopped doing Neil the Horse and doing comics because. In 1993, suddenly, I couldn't get published. And this was not the day of the internet or self publishing or print on demand or any of those things that nowadays, or the web, of course, you know, nowadays people don't have to have a publishing company. Mm -hmm. But back then it was you don't have a publishing company, you're not a cartoonist anymore. And nobody would publish me. Not any. Now, every. P- Comics publisher in North America turned me down. I had the graphic novel. and It was just it was ready to ink. You know, it had some of the pages inked. I just was nobody anymore all of a sudden. And after a while I thought, well, I guess I have to give up now. I <laughs> didn't know what else to do. <laughs> so, so I did. I gave up. Went off to, to have a different life. I'm a social worker. But I also, coincidentally, I think it was a coincidence, It was also just around the time that I had my gender reassignment, as they call it. And it's the weirdest thing. Your assignment is to be a girl, (laughs) (laughs) which was fine with me. So so I went away and just ignored comics. I was really hurt. I was really, really hurt that nobody wanted me anymore. Um, But luckily I had uh, another life to live. So it's only in the last few months, suddenly, that I've been dragged back, kicking and screaming, into the comics community again, <laughs> because people have been so nice. This uh, Hermes Press wants to do the book, which we may, or may or may not get to put it out because um, of the money. Um, and uh, then I won the, uh, was given the uh, Hall of Fame award at the. Joe Schuster was in, in uh, Toronto, so now I'm in the Canadian Comic Book Creators Hall of Fame. So it's all wonderful and nice, and I really, I'd been thinking about doing comics again anyway, just sort of mm-hmm. mulling it over, but this has given me more of an impetus, but I'm not going to try to get back into publishing, uh, you know, there's no, no reason to do that anymore, and it would be a huge Effort, like, Neil the Horse comic book coming back on a regular basis? I don't think so. I'd have to kill myself. It would be just ridiculous to try to do that. Um, But I can do whatever comics I want and put them on the web and let people have a look at them and maybe do some, some self publishing, print on demand, stuff like that. And it wouldn't necessarily be Neil. I've told you a little bit about I want to do some autobiographical comics, not about me and my travails so much as my memories and my. And my thoughts about things autobiographically in a slightly different sense than, than some you know you 're not going to have to wade through my my bad dates, you know <laughs> anything, <laughs> anything like that <laughs> or my neuroses I woke up this morning and tried to kill myself and, you know, it, it 'll be other things, and then i 'd probably like to do Neil again at some point. I think well, let me tell you a story this typifies exactly i 'll show you exactly how I see myself now. I'm 66 years old. I uh, took some courses and did some volunteer work and got into this this um, uh, social work. I worked with people with mental and physical disabilities. I really like doing it. It's I don't know why, but I knew I wanted to do it. Um, now there was there used to be an old well she wasn't old at first a, a woman in the 1920s and 30s a blues singer named Alberta Hunter. This is, of course, in the States. She was a black woman. And she toured all over Europe and the States with, with big names. She, she sang along with uh, Louis Armstrong sometimes. And, and she was a, a famous, well-recorded blues singer. Well, after blues and, and jazz sort of went away from being the popular music, when, when rock and roll supplanted it, mm-hmm. she, she suddenly had no work. Yeah. And here she was. She was, in her, I think, in her 60s, about, about where I am now. And she took some training and went off and became a nurse in hospitals in New York City. Well, sort of 20 or 30 years later, I don't remember exactly how long, but a long time. She was still working as a nurse. She was in her 80s, and nobody knew how old she was. And she started singing again. Somehow she was lured out of retirement, and people found her places to sing. They found gigs for her. And she became a regular performer again. She was able to quit the nursing. And she sang in clubs. I saw her in the 80s in New York, uh, right up till she died. She did not new recording and everything. Right. So, so my fantasy is that I'll be the Alberta hunter of, of comics. Um, I you know, went away for 20 years, went into a completely different profession. Nobody in my, in my work knows anything about me being a cartoonist. And they don't know how old I am either. For that matter, they think I'm 80. But um, <laughs> No, they don't. <laughs> no, 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 they, they don't. don't <laughs> no, no. So that's, that's an inspiring figure for me to see that somebody could go away, do something else, make a complete life out of doing something else, and go back to the the first thing. And luckily now, I'm not rich, I I don't have any money, but I do get my old age security every month now, um, and a few other government stipends here and there. Plus I'm working part-time as a social worker. Um, I think I see coming for me for the next decade or two a time of my life when I'll be not well off, but I'll be secure,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, unless they abolish old age pensions. Um, I'm working on wood. Yeah, really. <laughs> there's no wood here. Oh no. <laughs> um, so you know, the thing is, I would have time if I can work part time. I'll still have a number of days every every week. Adjust for myself, and I, I could do it. I could I could draw comics again. So that might happen. I don't know. Life continues to surprise.
1: (laughs) I think you've picked the perfect thing for us to end on, Catherine. Do we need to say anything more about the Indiegogo page? We should mention that. Um, Indiegogo, uh, I'll have a link on the website for uh, the campaigns called Save Neil the Horse. Something stupid like that. Um and uh, it'll be published by Hermes, Hermes Press. Press. I keep want to say Hermes Press. That's terrible and pretentious of me. <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> well, actually, in, in French, you would say Hermes. Yeah. So even more it's horrible of pretentious. me, because yeah, well, I it, cannot get even close to that. <laughs> I, well, I'm nothing but, if not pretentious. But, um, yeah, the, the page is only... The appeal, the campaign, is only going till November the 7th. Undoubtedly, some people will be hearing this long after that. If this... Fundraising effort doesn't work, which so far it looks like it won't. Um, something else will happen. Yeah, we'll do something else. Neil will be available sometime in the next few years. So, so there. So, thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you, Robin. We could go on and on.